0: Welcome to another episode of Exploring Art Podcast, a Florida International University student podcast for the creative curious. I'm your host, Calista Peterson. I am very pleased to have Michelle Weiss and Marino Tata Fiore here. Welcome to Exploring Art Podcast. So in today's episode, we will be exploring one of the most essential questions within the world of art. And that is of course, what distinguishes a work as art? And what factors really separate art from other everyday objects? So this question of what constitute arts is actually a really complex and subjective one. And it has been a topic of debate among artists, philosophers, and scholars alike for the past few centuries. Even though the reality is that as it stands, there is no single universally accepted definition of what qualifies as art. So to help us explore this question today, we will be focusing our investigation on one singular work of contemporary art that challenged this definition and this question to an absolutely entirely new level. In today's episode, we that will be Carl Andre's contemporary work, Equivalent 8, which is more commonly known as Pile of Bricks. So to kind of bring in Michelle, to help us get a better understanding of this question, we're going to go straight to the source of what it was asked about. In case, in this case, as we mentioned, that's going to be Equivalent 8 by Carl Andres. So just to get started, Michelle, can you tell us a little bit more about the origins of this piece so we can get a
1: solid starting point? Yeah, of course. So this work was originally created by American artist Carl Andres, and it's part of his Equivalent series. This work was originally one part of an eight-part series called Uh, equivalent V, uh, equivalent 8. It has always been the most well-known because of the controversial reception it received when it was debuted at the Tate Gallery in Britain. According to the Tate Museum, each of André's equivalent series consists of a rectangular arrangement of 120 fire bricks. Although the shape of each sculpture is different, they all have the same height, mass, and volume and are therefore equivalent to each other. It should also be noted that all of Andre's sculptures used industrial materials that were then arranged into simple geometric patterns. Also, a quick fun fact about the artist is that all of Andre's works were displayed on the floor rather than on platforms or displays.
2: Yeah, and just to add on to what Michelle was saying, so sculptures are always placed on the floor rather than on any platforms. And the whole point of that is so that the works are not only just objects to look at, but they also become part of the environment.
0: Oh, okay. So now that we've established the background of this piece itself, I think before we can continue, we should probably take a step back and establish the origins of the artist himself. So going back to Michelle, can you help us get a better understanding of the artist that made such a bold choice to display a literal pile of everyday bricks in one of the most prestigious art galleries in Britain?
1: Yeah, of course. So in order to fully appreciate his work and its impact, we kind of need to understand him. Carl Andre was actually originally born in Quincy, Massachusetts in the 1930s, but his career didn't start until the 1950s when he moved to New York City and became deeply involved with the popular avant-garde art scene that was popular at the time. He found his first taste of success with equivalent series, which really challenged traditional notions of sculpture and created some intense discussions about the definition of art.
2: Yeah, and just adding again to what Michelle said, according to the Guggenheim Museum's official website, uh, Andre's first solo show was held in 1965 at the Tibor de Nagy Gallery in New York. And in the 1970s, the artist prepared numerous large-scale installations, one of them being Blocks and Stones in 1973 for the Portland Center for the Visual Arts in Oregon and some other outdoor works such as Stonefield Sculpture in 1977 in Hartford. And he continues to emphasize material and spatial specificity in all of these pieces. And Interestingly he also created some poetry works alongside the sculptures that brought him a lot of his notoriety.
0: Okay so from my understanding this is kind of the point in his career from which we see his very notable, notable influence
1: on the minimalist movement. And what ways did he really push the limitations? So all throughout the 1960s and 70s, his work was included in different exhibitions around North America, and his participation really helped establish the minimalist movement. Even considering that his art sparked controversy, it also received critical acclaim, and he's recognized as a key figure in the development of the minimalist movement. Okay, so it
0: seems like there is a fairly large amount of context behind this work. And we've been hearing a lot about how this work divided the art community and created chaos and created all this controversy. But what was the main factor that was driving this intense criticism?
2: So actually to answer that question, we're gonna have to talk about a really pivotal moment for this piece, which was the original presentation of the work back in 1972. And kind of to set the scene a little bit, we're in the Tate Gallery. Which was founded in 1897 and originally named the National Gallery of British Art, and later renamed the Tate Gallery after sugar magnate Henry Tate and Tate Lyle, of Tate and Lyle.
1: Now that you mention that, I think it's important to note while we're on the subject that the Tate Gallery has pretty significant, deep philanthropic roots going all the way back to its establishment. Oh, is that true? Yeah, so a lot of people don't know this, but the Tate Gallery was actually founded from the personal donations of Henry Tate. And the museum was originally known as Tate Britain when it first opened in 1897. Since then, the Tate has actually made some pretty tangible efforts to keep that legacy alive. Now they partner with Bloomberg Philanthropies to keep art alive for the next generation.
2: The Tate Institution is actually a network of four separate art galleries, and it's in the National Collection of the United Kingdom.
0: Okay, so very clearly, we're working with an institution that values both the old and traditional, as well as the new in the world of art, and also has some pretty significant funding behind it.
2: Exactly. So, when Equivalent Eight was first displayed in 1974, there was actually no large, like, not really a large scale reaction to the piece or the series as a whole. The real controversy actually started two years later in 1976 when it was actually taken off display. The British press reported outrage over the fact that tax dollars had been spent on housing and protecting a literal pile of bricks. And this media storm actually ended in the artwork being publicly defaced by a chef named Peter Stowell Phillips, who actually covered the bricks in Blue Food Diet.
1: Even beyond the actual vandalism, there was some bad press because only one part of the series had been purchased, and the context of the equivalence between the pieces was completely lost. And for me, this is where we start getting into the question of what makes art, art. It's really interesting that simply removing one part from the whole suddenly removes the art. The The viewer can no longer see how this piece is art.
2: Yeah, and I think just to add to that, there's also a certain significance to the piece being displayed in a museum of this caliber. I mean, most visitors would expect a certain level of quality from a museum like the Tate at that sort of level of establishment. I mean the public outcry at the time is all the proof that you really need Normally people would accept that any work put in an art museum could easily be classified as art without much discussion But that wasn't really the case with equivalent eight. It was actually quite the opposite The general consensus was that this work was definitely not art and I think this is for a couple reasons uh, first and most obvious is obviously the materials were just literal just obvious it's bricks but more than that, I think the minimalist design and the construction was the main cause for alarm. There's the assumption with art that the art piece has to take some degree of specialization or skill to make that the average human just doesn't possess. But this was a case where anyone realistically could have made the work. There was no extraordinary technique or skill that was needed to arrange the bricks. But because an artist decided it as art and sold it to a museum, an everyday object became this beautiful art piece. And it should also be noted that concept art was also very big at the time. Concept art or idea art, as it's normally called, is art that the artist wants to represent an idea and to be more than its physical parts. And Equivalent 8 is not a largely conceptual piece. Part of the public issue with it was probably because it doesn't really represent a big idea. The piece is meant to comment on physical space and the objects in our daily life that we normally forget about.
0: Okay, so that was a lot. So what you're saying is, so the problem was that it was displayed at this prestigious historic museum that really values art of high quality, but it was just a pile of bricks.
2: Not exactly. Uh, There's also an aspect of the way the museum organizes its displays that probably caused some confusion and didn't help the piece's reception. Uh, The Tate organizes its galleries normally based on theme. So for a while, this piece was actually displayed near landscapes by John Constable, who was a well-respected English artist. Uh, A New York Times article actually talked about how his art actually celebrated a bicentennial anniversary while displayed in the same gallery as equivalent 11th. And the article kind of called it a pity in a way.
1: I would like to point out that I can understand why the Tate chose to do that. I can see the theme being about space and the things taking up space in our world. I can see where this kind of a display could be really effective. But you have to get the pieces. Given that this is a very minimalist piece and minimalism was very new at the time, I don't think it was necessarily a great choice for this piece. I kind of see what you guys are saying, but it doesn't really sound
0: helpful to the work at all. Well,
2: it actually gets worse because uh, when the pay- when it came out in the papers that the Tate bought just a pile of bricks, uh, the price of the piece was actually wildly overestimated. Uh, the Daily Mirror actually reported that the piece cost around 12,000 pounds, when in reality, it only cost around 2,000, which really isn't that much for a large art piece, even at the time. And especially for a museum the size of the tape with the grant from their, the, their grant from the government, which I believe at the time was more than a million dollars.
0: Wow, that is a lot of money. But so what it sounds like to me is that when it was originally debuted, because of its non-traditionality, the price was wildly over-exaggerated by the press. And there was some negative reaction in the papers. But I kind of want to know, how did the everyday
1: viewer or visitor kind of react to this? So some of the reactions were actually kind of funny and could be considered art on their own. The press actually spawned several brickworkers around London to create their own art pieces, such as Tony Heffer, who created a herringbone pattern with 30 bricks and joked that he could sell it to the Tate for more than what he earned in a year. However, the public reaction turned into outrage and culminated with equivalent eight being publicly defaced by that chef, Peter Stoll Phillips, who we talked about earlier, covering it in Blue Food Dye. That is pretty extreme. Uh, well, do we know if there's actually any comment about
0: how the artist felt about this?
2: Well, he was actually pretty upset that his work wasn't really understood and then it caused so much uproar because originally he meant for the piece to be about tranquil contemplation.
0: So it sounds like both the press and the everyday people pretty much hated it. Is that correct to say?
2: Uh, Not exactly. Uh, Most every, pretty much everyday people hated it and all that, but also some critics hated it too. And while the critics thought that the papers were somewhat over-exaggerating and their their stories were a bit sensational, they didn't go rush, they didn't go rush to defend the piece themselves either. Some, like uh, Bernard Levin, who was a Times columnist at the time, was actually certain that Equivalent 8 was no more than a pile of bricks.
1: Not everybody hated it either. Some people did enjoy them. That same Times article quoted a guest calling them relaxing. And I'd also like to bring up one of the biggest champions of the piece was the uh, director of the um, Tate at the time, who actually compared the piece to John Constable and said that it would probably be appreciated in the future the way John Constable was. Really? I actually
0: have something to add to that in doing some research for this episode. I actually found out that in addition to this, when negative reviews started coming out about the piece, the director of curation at the time actually came out with a five page defense and requested a certain news source to be able to write a reaction or a counter argument to the critique they had posed and proceeded to write five pages in defense of equivalent eight. But nevertheless, it was controversial. But I think that really brings back today's central question. And that of course, is this piece art?
2: I mean, that really is kind of the big question, isn't it? I mean, it kind of depends on the definition of art that you use. I mean, if you define art as something that requires some degree of specialization or skill that the average human does not possess, then equivalent eight is obviously not art. And you can understand the reaction that the public had to it.
1: But if you define art as something with meaning that the artist used to communicate something, then equivalent eight is art. It's really a personal opinion, I think, that can't be right or wrong. Right, because the piece was trying to communicate
0: that we need to be more aware of the things that exist in our world. So, but what you're saying, Michelle, is that defining art is solely dependent on personal opinion.
1: Kind of. To get a better understanding, let's look at a case study. Consider the following possibility, and this is based on the exhibit of equivalent eight at the Tate Gallery in 1976. A person already known perhaps even famous as a minimalist sculptor, buys 120 bricks and on the floor of a well-known art museum, arranges them in a rectangular pile, two bricks high, six across, 10 lengthwise. He labeled it pile of bricks. Across town, a bricklayer's assistant at the building site takes 120 bricks of the very same kind and arranges them in the very same way, wholly unaware of what has happened in the art museum he's just a bricklayer's assistant can the first pile of bricks be a work of art and the second pile isn't even though the two pieces are seemingly identical in all observable respects why or why not
2: well i mean i think we can all agree that the work by the minimalist is art right
0: yeah but the second pile it's a little more complicated right
2: I mean, from my point of view, there's just not really a way that this could be classified as art. I mean, the bricklayer's assistant had absolutely no intention or creative reasoning or any motive at all to make a work of art. He was just doing his job. For me, this question is simply about answering the question itself of was this piece creatively, artistically motivated in any way at all? And the answer you get is pretty straightforward that no, there really wasn't. It doesn't seem like there was any relevant conscious thoughts other than just completing an everyday and mundane task for him.
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely a point there. There is potentially another way to think about this, though. If you think of art as an innovative design created through imagination, where the design was not copied or majorly influenced by anything, then the second bricklayer, the second pile of bricks, the one made by the bricklayer, could be art. The bricklayer's assistant doesn't know about the gallery, and if he wasn't inspired by the first pile of bricks, by that definition, it's art. If he had known about the first pile of bricks, then the classification as art would be a little more dubious. It'd be a little less recognizably art.
0: So... In this specific scenario, what is the defining factor that really separates the artist's piece from the bricklayer's pile of bricks? I think once we get that answer, we pretty much have our ultimate conclusion.
2: I mean, for me personally, it kind of comes down to creative intent. Like, did the, the artist intend for the piece to be art? I mean, if that was the intention, then it's art. But if it wasn't, it's kind of just an object.
0: I agree. So what do you then think about the changing definitions of art? How could this piece not be art in the 1970s, but maybe considered art now? I think
1: that has a little more to do with the changing ideas people have about art. Like we said earlier, in the 1970s, conceptual art was popular, and conceptual art involves art that wants to portray something bigger than itself. It makes sense, based on what equivalent art is, that people in the 1970s didn't think it was art because uh, the point was that it was just bricks. Our common idea of what art is and what modern art is has changed pretty dramatically since then. So it makes sense that this piece could be art now, but not then. Okay, I think I understand. So
0: looking back at the critiques for this piece, I can't help but feel like we're kind of repeating the same old song a lot when it comes to contemporary art. I feel like this genre t- tends to attract a lot of attention around the question that we just discussed, is this even art?
2: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I mean, the cool thing is that we don't even have to stay in the hypothetical to back this stuff up. We have a real world comparison that can actually help us with this question. I mean, it's gonna be a little bit out there, but I promise this is a true story. Back in the 90s, a group of artists called the Art Guys debuted their piece, Cheese Grid, with the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art. And it's kind of just a, it's basically just a grid of sliced American cheese and organized in a nice neat fashion grid. I mean, uh, the Scottsdale Museum's website describes this piece as an architectural exploration of cheese. And the same website actually goes on to elaborate that as time progresses, the Processed cheese squares become a little funky. They turn orange, begin to curl up and shrivel. They release a peculiar odor and they even start to sweat.
1: Actually, in doing some research for this episode, I came across an article by Scottsdale's Art that actually informed me that cheese grid was directly inspired by equivalent eight or this pile of bricks. Quoting, I'm quoting here. The work was a humorous reference to American minimalist artist Carl Andres' floor sculptures, grids, from the 1960s that were made of more traditional art materials. And remember, this happened in the 90s, which was pretty recent comparatively. So considering the mockery of this work was relatively recently displayed as a contemporary work of art, I'd say there's pretty solid argument for the case that equivalent eight is art.
2: I completely agree. And I mean, another thing to consider is this work has inspired its fair share of mockery and imitation throughout its time. But ironically, all that did was bring more attention to the piece and its place in the art world was cemented by the criticism ultimately.
0: So we've covered a lot today and thank you so much for your thoughts on this case. So I think before we kind of summarize it, we gotta know what's the ultimate conclusion Is this piece art? I think so.
2: I think so as well.
0: All right. Well, then we have our answer. So just to synthesize everything we've covered today, we started by talking about Equivalent Ape by Carl Andre and the origins of both the piece and the artist, as well as how this piece fits in with the huge controversy behind it. Michelle and Marino really brought up some really amazing points about popular ideas of art at the time, as well as common definitions of art. I'd like to bring up some of the points Marino made about the material, bricks, not being respected art materials at the time, and the difference between conceptual and minimalist art. With the piece being made of bricks as well, the piece being influenced by newspapers, it really is no surprise that the public image at large kind of thought it was a waste of money and we got a bit of a clear view of the situation by considering both the history and situation of the Tate gallery as well as a comparative case study and thinking about the qualifications of being called art utilizing the case study we recognized that the main reason something is art is the intention of the maker for it to be art We also discussed a derivative work of Equivalent 8 called Cheese Grid, which is very similar to Andre's piece, except, of course, being made out of cheese. Equivalent 8, even though it is just a pile of bricks, is remembered for its controversy. And I just want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Michelle and Mariano. I really appreciate it. This concludes Exploring Art Podcast. Subscribe to Exploring Art Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.
1: Please join us soon and remember to stay curious.